How complicit are ordinary Russians in the invasion of Ukraine? That's a question at the core of Russia's War, a book published earlier this year in May, where author Jade McGlynn explores what she calls the grievances, lies, and half-truths that pervade the Russian worldview, arguing that too many people in Russia have invested too deeply in the Kremlin's alternative narratives to see the war in Ukraine as the brutal assault that it is. Dr. McGlynn is a specialist in Russian media, memory, and foreign policy in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and she's this week's guest on the show. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. Howdy folks, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. We didn't release a new episode last week. I know you're all heartbroken because I came down with the flu. I'm mostly recovered, but I apologize if you can still hear it in my voice. This week's show tackles a thorny issue in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moral culpability. Not the moral culpability of Vladimir Putin and his military generals. That's pretty clear cut, obviously. No, I'm talking about whether ordinary Russians are complicit in the war. On social media, this discourse manifests, sometimes in pretty ugly ways, as a debate about so-called good Russians, and if they even exist. Jade McGlynn has taken questions about moral culpability in the war and elevated it into a full book, and she was kind enough to come on this podcast to talk about that book. Russia's war grapples with a lot of heavy stuff, as I've just described, but our conversation started with a question about a single person in the book who resurfaces several times as a provocative character. I asked Dr. McGlynn about Vladimir Arlov, the director of the Pierce Center, an influential Moscow-based think tank. McGlynn talks about how Orlov lacks the moral strength and moral autonomy to separate himself from national narratives and reassert his humanity. She says the falsehoods spread by him and elites like him reveal the darker parts of humanity and of Russian culture. I asked Dr. McGlynn why Arlov made such an impression on her. If you could explain... What is the significance in this book of Vladimir Orlov? Because you, you mentioned him a few times, you describe his lack of empathy, what you perceive to be his lack of empathy, and it, it sort of resurfaces a few times in the book. And I wonder, like, what made such an impression that you kind of kept coming back to him? I think it was that Vladimir Orlov is very likable. I'd known him before anyway, sort of since around 2018, I think. And he's somebody who is very much, you know, educated, in the West, ticks a lot of boxes in terms of, I suppose, what maybe some policymakers might think would be the sort of person who would be, you know, really against against the war or some maybe potential leverage who had an interest. And I think what I found maybe not most interesting, but maybe most unsympathetic, if we're just being honest, is I think the cynicism with everybody else that I spoke to, and I try really hard to always do this, especially if I disagree with somebody, with everybody else that I spoke to, I could understand at some point where they were coming from. Of course, I didn't agree with it, but I could find some sort of point of, okay, I can see that. And with him, I couldn't. That didn't come through. I mean, of course, I didn't have as many discussions with him as I did with perhaps some of my other respondents. And I didn't know him as well as some of my other respondents as well. But I struggled to find anything where I could understand how he got to the point where he is talking about, you know, Ukrainians in the way that he did, where he's blaming Butcher on the British when he knows full well that the British didn't stage Butcher. Sometimes you speak to people and you can see that they're, they're angry. Maybe there's something painful and they might take that out by sort of making certain claims or certain assertions. But that wasn't the case here. 
And so I suppose maybe that's why I keep on coming back to him is because he's, as an academic, I quite like to put people in different groups and to categorize and to make it all tidy and nice. He doesn't go anywhere. I don't, I don't understand how you become somebody like Vladimir Love. Have you heard back from him or any of the other respondents that you mentioned in this book? Have they, have you been in contact with them and have they commented on, oh, this is how you describe me in your book? Because a lot of what you're doing, it seems to me, is you're reproducing what it is people said, but then you're sort of offering your interpretation of their emotionality or their rationale. And I imagine it'd be a very unusual experience to have a conversation with you and then read in your book what it is you thought of them as you were conversing. Like, Have you heard back from him or any of the other respondents that you mentioned in this book? Yes. And of course, I also cleared the sections with people too, although not with Vladimir Arlov. Um, Actually, because of the way it was set up, which was that he insisted on absolutely everything being recorded from his side too, so that there would be no need to have to clear anything later. So it wasn't my decision to do it like that. Whereas with people where we had a conversation and I had a private recording, I checked with them because that was a different setup. Have I had any communication? Um, yes, I think with most, and obviously a lot of the sort of respondents who I pseudonymize, I mean, they're people who are ongoing respondents, and that's a bit different. I'm not sure if I agree with you that I sort of try to interpret their emotionality. I mean, part of the issue is, of course, that some of the conversations I had were off the record, but there's sort of context that I can intuit to explain. And I don't think, for example, some of my comments on um, Dmitry Trenin's position, I think they're pretty well established by anybody who really knows Dr. Trenin in that sense. I try to use it to add that human angle to explain how sometimes the ideas that we just see written down can be expressed by human beings who obviously will then take on their own approach. I wanted to humanise the propaganda. Obviously, a large chunk of it is also based on the sort of large-scale telegram analysis. I mean, it's the same issue with my PhD, and it's also one of the reasons why, you know, my current project at KCR won't be focusing on domestic Russian political narratives is because I think that it's fine to look at what's produced in the media. And I think it has a use, especially if looked at in a sustainable and large scale way. But you also, you need to speak with people to understand to what extent people are sort of engaging with those narratives and what they do with them, because nobody watches, very few people watch the media and then just repeat it like an automaton, you know, they put it so it makes context in their own lives. I suppose that was the point always of the book. If I put it really basically, I want to explain why I happen to know so many people who broadly did back the war. I wanted to explain their point of view because I think it's an important one. And I think as well, because it was one of these things I felt very angry in 2014 at some of the positions, but I'd kind of got over that anger enough that whilst of course I still feel, I think everybody feels a lot of emotions about the ongoing war against Ukraine. By that point, I suppose I'd settled into a pattern of research where I was able to disassociate. And again, I should come back to your Arlov question. Maybe that's why Arlov bothered me, because I couldn't fully disassociate from him. And it wasn't the criticisms of the Anglo-Sax, because I get them a lot. <laughs> I thought that Lukyana had the like most biting dig at the British. I think it was just <laughs> oh, something like, funny. when the Russians go, that'll be the last ones yeah. who still consider Great Britain to be a great power. Yeah, I thought it was very funny, though. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sure he was. He said it in a friendly way. Judging he by did, you, he did. That's, yeah. the, that's the thing. I mean, he, to be honest with you, I really enjoyed the conversations that I had. I found his analysis quite helpful. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of the time, well, when it comes to all of the respondents, I don't really see them just as sort of like, oh, these are people. They're not, they're not just sort of objects of my analysis. They also, of course, then shape my own analysis a little bit. And I include them as analysts generally, you know, provide to the extent that if I feel like they're engaging with good faith, which, which certainly Fyodor was. 
I want to ask you some questions more specifically about the like methodology of the book. But before I do that, I don't want to get too down in the weeds before I get to some like big questions that really should be asked about the book, generally having to do with the arguments you make about moral culpability for the sort of Russian people at large. It's Russia's war, right? I mean, it's in the title. So it's like a big key thing. I mean, in that's the book. not, I definitely wouldn't talk about moral culpability of the nation. I think individuals, there's two issues. Sure, not that's what I mean. Yes. And one of them is responsibility. You write that the Russian people are, so I'm quoting here, the Russian people are largely complicit in the war's launch and the way it has been waged. You say that not reacting to a war inflicted in your name is at best tacit acquiescence and at worst supercilious endorsement. Sorry, I don't use, normally use the word supercilious, so I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> you say it's not a neutral act. And so my question for you is, is there no such thing as neutrality under these conditions? I guess like you're talking about individuals, as you just said, like what are the categories here? Like I assume you're not including like a newborn baby. No, of course not. Sure. And maybe not like a senile old lady either who's like unaware of what's even happening. What about like somebody who's like in such poverty that all they worry about is like the next paycheck or somebody who's like suffering from cancer and is worrying about that? I can imagine different kinds of people where the case would be such that, oh, they like had the opportunity to do something and they didn't versus someone who really didn't have much of an opportunity. What are the like shades of grey here, if they exist? There are so many shades of grey. I mean, I'm not a priest. It's not my job to sit and say that's not what I wanted to do with the book. But I had to kind of make the point that I don't see this as the war of one person. I think that when the war began, when the full-scale invasion began, and that's another point is that generally when I'm talking about the war, I'm talking about a war that began in 2014. You know, people have had a long time and lots of people did stand up. And although he's much maligned, I mean, Alexei Navalny is one of those. He went to the peace marches, for example. There were thousands of people, but maybe not as many people as were celebrating Crimea. But I see all of this is interlinked. So that's point one. Point two is, it's not my job to be a priest. I, I don't... You do write about sin, though. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I've made lots of mistakes. I've been a coward so many times in my life and I wouldn't protest if I were Russian. And I'm complicit in the war, to be blunt. Does it go backwards? Does this culpability reverse as well? I mean, I know that the war is being waged in, in the name of Russians. It's not necessarily being fought in the name of Britons or Americans. But at the same time, those countries are very involved in like supporting Ukraine. So would you argue also that an American who goes to see the flash this weekend instead of donating that money to the Ukrainian armed forces is to some degree acquiescing or endorsing like Ukraine's sort of a stalemate or no, something? No, like in that particular case, but I think, and again, I mean, and to a certain extent, I guess the whole world is sort of complicit. I mean, if you want to take it that far, yeah. I mean, if certainly if I'll just focus on the UK, I think that everybody who encouraged, you know, we really enabled the Kremlin to become what it is. And we didn't really do anything after the annexation of Crimea. It was only after the downing of MH17 when real Europeans died that there were some proper sanctions imposed. We allowed elites to come over with all the money and all of the resources that they'd stolen from ordinary Russians. Lots of people in the West, or at least in the UK, still seem to think that, oh, okay, but Russians want to be like this. You know, a lot of Russians who hate Putin also really don't like the West, and I understand why. I think they've got a point, to be honest with you, because they ask why we've kind of served as a butler. I'm talking about the UK again, why we've kind of served as a butler for people who are terrible, and now we turn around and sort of point the finger at, at them. So what I wasn't trying to do was to point my finger at sort of every single Russian. I have no right to do that. Like I was saying, I myself am complicit 
in this war. I paid taxes to Russia. I need to go to Russia. You know, obviously, I'm not supposed to. And I think that's part of the reason why now I wanted to try to do things is, of course, because this is like a huge amount of guilt. I always kind of really understood what it was about. And I ignored maybe some of that knowledge. So if everybody's going to hell, I'm already there sort of thing. But again, I don't think that you can talk. People are guilty for what they do. People are responsible. I mean, we're all responsible. I didn't I didn't vote for Boris Johnson, but clearly, you know, I'm also kind of complicit in the sort of country that has that guy in power, right? Or had that guy in power. So I think it's about taking responsibility for your society. And I have to say, I'm very kind of skeptical. Some parts of the arguments convince me, but other parts don't. You know, this idea of, okay, well, like Russians, they don't have any responsibility because it's a dictatorship. And this isn't an academic point. I think it's just my view of sort of, you know, free will, that sort of magical part. And again, it- Do they have less responsibility than an American or Britain does for Iraq? No, I think it's very similar. In fact, I say they have a bit less. I say they have less in Russia because they have much less ability to influence the political system. So again, it's not about essentializing Russia. It's about looking at the reasons why people back the war, because a lot of people do. It doesn't mean they're actively supporting it, but a lot of people do. And if we all sit there and pretend that they don't and that they've never liked it since 2014, then we're all living in cloud cuckoo land, aren't we? You state in the book, sort of unambiguously, you say that Zelensky is a hero. Yeah, yes. And you later you call out what you call the problem of Russia reproducing its past. You say, you say this phenomenon makes it hard for societies and individuals to identify who is good and who is bad. And I wonder, what's the approach here when you're looking sort of at a society level analysis and you're delineating, you know, like good and bad? What's the research question here when you're making an observation like that? How do you mean you would have a research question for something that you went away and researched this more? I mean, this isn't an academic book. It's a general audience book that's informed by academic analysis. So it's not a research question. It's more just a sort of observation that if you destroy all sense of right or wrong, if you have a country like Russia where I'm sure you saw the video as well. You have a six-year-old, you know, you have a dad whose hands are being prized off his six-year-old girl who's being taken to go to social services because she drew a picture about no to war. And then you have people who happen to be the son of a governor who've run somebody over whilst drunk and they don't go to prison. I mean, clearly that's going to do something to people in terms of their ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And there are some things that perhaps you don't need to analyze. I don't think that, and I hope, well, maybe some Omanovsi or especially in Russia do, but I don't think most people need to have it explained why it's wrong to get drunk and run somebody over and not be punished or why it's wrong to take a girl away, you know, a little girl away from her dad. There are some things that are just right or wrong. In your view, Russian society is like, it's like unhealthy insofar as it like can't delineate that or? No, again, I don't really like this language, like this pathologizing language, because it's not language that I would like to use. It's not about it being unhealthy. I mean, yeah, of course, unhealthy British society is unhealthy. All societies are unhealthy. Some elements of this are very specific, you know, to certain Russian sort of socio-cultural, socio-political factors. Of course, each country kind of has a different culture, blah, blah, blah. But much of this is actually about human, just basic human reactions to what you do if you feel like there isn't truth. What happens if you live somewhere and there isn't, you know, trust in institutions? I mean, there's nothing unique about Russians. In a chapter on washing brains, Dr. McGlynn shares the results of her study of nearly 75,000 posts on the social network Telegram. 
She downloaded the Telegram data for 16 popular but diverse channels between February 24th and May 20th, 2002, and coded their content by audience engagement. I asked her to explain this selection and analysis process. How did you decide on the particular Telegram channels that you were going to analyze or do this analysis of? So partly it was informed by my PhD, which of course looked um, at a lot of state media, although it, I mean, it did look at online sites, but it didn't look at social media. And so I was already quite grounded, I suppose, within the Kremlin-aligned media system. And what I wanted to do was to get a large group. I wanted to get sort of a variety, similar to the PhD, actually, a variety of different types and approaches to being, I suppose, pro-Kremlin. But of course, then I want to also measure that against popularity to a certain extent. So I tried to get a wide group, but also with some popularity and to get some insights. But again, it's not going to be fully representative because it's not really trying to be. It just wanted to give a snapshot of what certain groups of people, whether or not that's politicians, whether or not that's more tabloidy, whether or not it's what I call, not in the book, but in the academic article that's currently making its way through the seven-year peer review process, is sort of the extremist in the sense that they're not really representative of a large constituency, you know, as in their views are not like things that would be normal, if we can put it that way, or frequent here. So somewhere like Sargrad, for example, or even Kudirov, even though he's very, very popular, I mean, Kudirov is not. Are they noteworthy because they're so extreme or because they potentially have outsized influence or both? So it depends. I think for Kadyrov, there's his popularity, the fact that he has the fourth most popular Telegram channel across all Telegram and easily the most popular one on political Telegram means that he really does have to be, I felt that he did have to be included. But with someone like Sagrad, it's because, and again, I mean, this is also going to be slightly, you have to wade through that many, you have to have a slight interest, right, in some of the posts that you're going to have to read. It's because I suppose they're there broadly to stand in for a type of kind of nationalist, almost like ecclesiastical nationalism element that I don't find to be actually that prominent, certainly in, in my field work, but that sometimes can appear in certain elite statements to an extent that I think it needs to be considered or at least included among the group. Did anything about, you know, you gather all this data, you look for trends, essentially, did anything you found surprise you or did it confirm what you expected? No, no, it didn't. I mean, some elements confirmed. Okay, so one thing is that I was surprised that there wasn't more engagement with the Russophobia narratives. So it's not that they didn't appear, they were there, but they just very rarely had much engagement or were shared, which is interesting because then you start to think about, okay, so who are these narratives aimed at? And perhaps they're aimed at, you know, because you had billboards up in Moscow. So it was interesting. They're obviously aimed at somebody. And then the second element, I suppose, I was a bit surprised by the lack of references to Ukraine in the opposition channels, but I only look really at two, and even Dobor is, is obviously against the war, but it's not like Stalin Gulag, for example. So I, I was a bit surprised by that, but I think it makes sense on a sort of political, sort of strategic level. But Yeah, at one point you argue along the lines, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but you say something like the opposition is essentially kind of dragged down or dragged in by a lot of the narratives that are prominent among the state media, the pro-Kremlin channels and so on, because they're essentially fighting for the same audience, or at least the same national audience. I think there is a comment there. I don't think it's my quote. I think it's somebody else's about the audience. But 
In terms of the argument, yeah, exactly. I think this is an issue, probably you could tell me more, more than I can tell you, but an issue that's ongoing for some of the opposition media that's still in exile is they have to speak to a Russian audience that lives in a certain context. Whether or not they even agree with that context is a different part, but it is a very different context. And I think that in some ways it's best to just leave Russian opposition media alone to do that job because they're not going to convince people in Russia, you're not going to be able to get messages through if you just spend your whole time, you know, focusing on what Russia is doing to Ukraine. Like, it's just not going to cut through. Whether or not that's the right thing to do is a completely different conversation. It's just not going to work, right? You're not going to engage audiences. You need to at least, you know, be cognizant of the context that's going on in the country. I think that's the really difficult thing for Russian politicians in exile, and I have no idea how to solve it. I hope they do. Are Russian politicians in exile, Russian media in exile, is you're living in a very pro-Ukrainian Western context, you know, and it's a very emotional time, understandably, because of the horrors of the war. But you still then need to speak to people who are kind of, given their audiences are unlikely to be kind of Z-heads or whatever, are going to be largely quite disassociated. Often when I speak to people in Russia, they just don't want to speak about the war. They just, you know, even people who wouldn't sharp about it a year ago. It's just sort of trying to escape from it. And of course, they're very lucky that they can, because that's not something that my Ukrainian friends can do. But at the same point, it's just a natural human reaction. I do have sympathy. I have quite a lot of sympathy for people who have to try to sit between those increasingly ever further stools. In the book, you write that anybody wishing to engage or change Russians' views will need to address the sources of why people you know, want the disinformation in the first place. And that's obviously what the book's about in large part. You're skeptical of any sudden shift in Russian national self-conceptualization. And you say that the whole countering disinformation with fact-checking, you're not too optimistic about that. So this is kind of a point about, you know, we have this whole industry that's set up about countering disinformation and I mean, the point isn't that people believe that there are, you know, these mad pigeons flying around with bioweapons. Maybe some people do, but the point is more when you go back, and again, maybe it's just because of the nature of my research and looking at these narratives sort of over the years and wanting to kind of strip them back to what they are at their core, you know, what meanings do they make? And, and again, actually, it comes back to a very human thing, which is that people want to belong to a group and people want to feel good about that group. And there's nothing bad about that. What's bad is this particular way that it's been sold by the Kremlin to meet what people's needs were. I felt that I tried quite hard to kind of explain some of the reasons why people might feel these grievances. And No, yeah, definitely. I thought it was actually a very bold thing because it's part of your conclusion. I mean, I assume some of the people picking up this book think, oh, well, this is a blueprint to sort of crack the Russian psyche. And now my messaging targeting the Russian public is going to get through. This is fantastic. I've got the code book right here. Let me read it get to the end. Oh, <laughs> you say that it's you, you sort of dissuade, discourage Western countries from trying to shape Putin's calculations, and you even discourage them from seeking to target messages at the Russian public. So I thought that was actually a very you know, bold conclusion to reach, given also your field. In the book, you say something along the lines of, this might hurt my own self-interest or something like that, or it's at least like runs counter to like the motivations of your career and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm, it does. And I'm reading this as, as the editor of an English language version of a Russian news outlet. We were just talking about how the Russian 
independent press in exile has to like kind of has to sit on on two chairs or whatever, sit on the fence. Because I would imagine that some of the people that contribute money to Medusa, they probably think, well, this is going to like win over some hearts and minds in Russia. I mean, maybe not the English language edition. That's more for the world to see. Yeah, yeah. But Medusa is Russian. It's, it's essential. I know it's not. I know it's Latvian. But, you know, I mean, I myself like donate to Medusa because I think it's really, really important to keep that other vision of different visions of Russia. You know, there are lots of different visions of Russia. There are lots and lots of different visions of Russia. And I happen to like Medusa's one. So I'm very happy if it keeps that, those kind of discussions and the pluralism alive. And I think that's important. I just don't think there's this solution. I don't think there's this solution where, okay, when Putin goes, it will be terrible. Or when Putin goes, even less likely, um, you know, everyone's going to march happily to some kind of liberal democracy, if not only because I don't really feel, I'll let you speak for the US, but I don't really feel like liberal democracy is in its heyday here anyway. I mean, Russia doesn't have a vision for the future, but nor do many European countries. To be honest, if you're writing this book, it was mostly about just staying sane because I just had a baby and I was just doom scrolling and annoying all my Ukrainian friends. And it was just a way to try to explain things because I felt like it was very simplistic, the sort of the focus on the binaries, the focus on, I suppose, offering Russians rather than thinking what we might do in their shoes. And that, but again, it's a difficult one to bridge. And I'm not saying I've done it perfectly because I haven't. But broadly, what I wanted to do was to explain, but not to justify. And obviously, as a Russianist, as somebody who's like, I still completely love Dostoevsky, I will defend him against anybody. Well, not not like his views, because he hates everybody, right? He's like trains, Catholics, Ukrainians, Poles, everybody. But the point is, is that, you know, I needed to kind of as well reflect on that position too, in the sense that, you know, okay, I've been to Ukraine a lot. I speak Ukrainian. I studied Ukrainian, but I came at it from a Russian perspective from a Russocentric perspective. And I wanted to be cautious, cautious of that. And also, I suppose as well, I mean, obviously some of it I was writing in the very earlier days of the war and it's very hard and I still feel it. And it's, it's probably, um, generally I'm very cynical, like you, if I may say. <laughs> but I mean, I really found it incredible. I really do think Zelensky is a hero for staying. I think that a lot of people would have fled. And I didn't think he would stay. I thought he would flee. And I think a lot of other presidents would have done. And I really was amazed, not so much that Ukrainians resisted, because I think that was pretty clear to anybody who'd been in Ukraine enough. But I guess just the scale, like the sheer bravery of it, um, because that's a decision too. It's pretty terrifying to stand up to the Russian army. You know, I have people who are sort of like, they have the most amazing hipster mustaches, you know, they're marketers. And they just picked up those guns that the government were handing out, like in the really early days, and just went without even helmets to the east. That's incredible. And I think a lot of Ukrainians were also pretty surprised that that came out. And I mean, sometimes I'm supposed to go back to sort of Dostoevsky and, you know, the conversations they have, like the Grand Inquisitor. And that was how I originally wanted to finish the book. But the publisher told me it's too academic, so I had to get rid of it. But it's about that element of free will. It's about that decision that people make. And ultimately, they don't cite it as a point to kind of condemn Russians for their decisions, but to also add, I guess, a bit of hope because they can make different choices. Nothing Putin's wrong. Nothing's essentialist. Human beings can change their minds. You know, I've spent a lot of my life in Russia. I really would like the country to be something different to what it is now, but... I think that's the only way I can theoretically arrive at the conclusion that it can be. It's we all have free will and we can make something different. (laughs) 
Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.